by Govanen. Welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel. I'm the Tolkien Geek, and in this video I want to do a character biography, but I want to do a character biography of a villain. The villain. Not quite the villain. Sauron. Of course, he's not the villain in the sense that Morgoth is the ultimate villain of Tolkien's legendarium and the entire uh, mythology, but for the Lord of the Rings, of course, Sauron is the villain. And I want to go through his history because most of what we get in the Lord of the Rings is very, very... He's kind of aloof. He's not really part of the action. We don't really know anything about him other than he's the Dark Lord and all that, and he forged the rings. You can find out a little bit more information about him in the appendices, and some of that is what I'm going to be going over. But his history kind of got evolved and developed all the way back into the Silmarillion material after Tolkien wrote... Uh, the Lord of the Rings that got additionally developed such that it kind of fit in with the broader narrative that the Lord of the Rings created within his world. So let's go ahead and get started talking about all the way back to the very beginning and working our way all the way through the Lord of the Rings. Let's go. One of the basic things to know about Sauron, of course, is the fact that he is a Maya. And a Maya is basically just like the Valar except a lesser, lesser order of essentially angels within Tolkien's universe. They're not, strictly speaking, angels in the sense that Christians or Jews think of angels, but closest equivalent. So the Valar, of course, include Morgoth himself, Manwe Sulimo, the uh, Lord of the Winds and the Eagles, uh, Ulmo, the Lord of the Waters, and Aule, who is the one who is most associated with crafting and forging and things of that nature. Aule is actually the Vala who... Um, Sauron was most associated with, and that plays into the way his character develops over time because it plays into why he ends up choosing the path of forging rings and that sort of thing. So anyway, he originally was a Maya who was associated with Aule. Whenever Melkor Morgoth corrupted and turned bad, he took he, he basically corrupted Sauron, and Sauron joined him, and you don't really get much of his history until later on after the rebellion of Morgoth, his return to Middle-earth after being imprisoned by the other Valar, and the flight of the Noldor from Valinor to chase Morgoth to recover the Silmarils. It's after that point that you get a long siege uh, where the elves have basically kind of contained Morgoth. He eventually breaks out of that siege and wreaks havoc on the elves and the the men that have allied with them. And after that, that's when we kind of start getting some more information about Sauron, because he ends up becoming, um, kind of, he's always been kind of Morgoth's right-hand man, or one of them, but he ends up taking control of what was before an elven fortress at on one of the rivers, and this becomes important later on because it plays a key, pivotal role in the story of Beren and Luthien. This is where he really first shows up as a character with any significant impact on a story. Beren and Luthien, of course, is the story of the man who falls in love with an elf maiden. And he is the man, Beren, is tasked with Luthien, with finding a, recovering, actually, a Silmaril from Morgoth's crown by Luthien's father, who, of course, thinks it's a hopeless task. He goes through a lot of different adventures trying to do this, but one of the things that he has to do is he has to get to, you know, Morgoth's realm. And to get there, he has to go past this old elven stronghold, which is now controlled by Sauron. 
Interestingly enough, that's an interesting parallel to the fact that Sauron and his forces would later co-opt the stronghold of men at Minas Ithil and turn it into Minas Morgul. So just interesting parallel to keep in mind there. At any rate, uh, Baron ends up being taken captive by uh, Sauron, who discovers him and the, the elves who were with him trying to help him achieve his goal. There's a whole story behind that I can't get into right now. Luthien eventually, who is essentially being held captive by her own father because he doesn't want her to go help him or do anything with him, he totally against the idea of the two of them being together, she eventually escapes, and with the help of a hound named Huan, who is essentially a magic dog, I mean, he's he can understand human speech, and he's even speaks a couple of times himself in the story, uh, he goes with Luthien to try to help her find and rescue Baron. And the interesting thing about this is Huon has a prophecy told about him, which basically says that he would only be killed by the greatest wolf ever to live. Sauron, when he realizes that uh, Luthien and Huon are coming, thinks, I'm going to turn myself into the biggest, baddest wolf ever, and I'm going to kill this guy. So he turns himself into wolf, but he's not the biggest, baddest wolf ever, and so he doesn't succeed. Huon actually overpowers him and manages to force him to release Baron and the other captives, which doesn't include any of the ones cap cha captured with Baron. They've all been killed at this point. Uh, but that's the first encounter we really have with Sauron, and after that, he is, his material form is basically destroyed, and he returns to Morgoth as just a spirit. And we don't really see much more of him for a long time. So the next time we really encounter him at all is kind of just as a passing note that after Morgoth is eventually conquered by the Valar who come to save the, the elves and men who have essentially been all completely enslaved or driven into the wilds, he is among the people who is given the chance to repent and you know go back to being a good guy and he at least pretends to do so. There's actually some indication that maybe he did at first really mean it and then fell back into his evil ways. It's not 100% clear. Tolkien never comes down hard and says it was definitely fake or definitely not fake. Um, but he, he does raise the possibility that maybe he really did repent initially, but it didn't stick. So that's basically Morgoth's role in the First Age. That's all that we really get of him as a character. I mean, there may be a couple extra mentions here and there, but that's the main extent to which he really affects the story. The second age is where his role really starts to pick up, and that's, of course, because Morgoth is no longer on the scene, leaving Sauron as the prime mover of evil in the world. So let's move to the second age and see what happens to him there. So as I mentioned, Sauron originally at least pretended to repent, and as part of that, he comes to the elves, the Noldor, who are still in Middle-earth, who didn't heed the call to come back to Valinor after Morgoth was, was uh, kicked out and uh, basically thrown into the Outer Void. Uh, he stays in Middle-earth as well, and that's one indication that maybe he too had not really repented because really he should have gone back to Valinor as well. Uh, be that as it may, he goes to the elves and much like Morgoth did in his early days, tries to kind of get buddy-buddy with the elves by teaching them what wisdom he has. 
Now remember, of course, he's a Maya who's associated with Aule, and so his his specialty, so to speak, is crafting and making things. And of course, of course, the Noldor are really into that sort of thing. They're all about making, building, designing, and that sort of thing. So Sauron's uh, gifts, to the extent that he has any to give, are very welcome. Now some elves take to him, some elves don't. The main elf who takes to him are, is Celebrimbor, who is uh, one of the descendants of Feanor through one of his seven sons, and who is second to Feanor, one of the, the greatest, probably the greatest craftsman ever known in Middle-earth. And he, of course, is the one who ends up forging the rings of power, the elven ring specifically. And he takes to Sauron because, of course, he wants to get as much wisdom and knowledge as he can in terms of forging and learning how to make things and whatnot. Some of the elves who don't go along would include Galadriel and Elrond and um, Gilgalad, who are Gilgalad, actually, I think is how it's pronounced, who still think that he's really not to be trusted. And at this point, he's also not really going by his proper name. He gives himself uh, another name, Anatar, I think is what it was. I'd have to go back and double check, but basically it means the giver of gifts or the father of gifts. And, of course, he's using that. He can still make himself look like, you know, a, a good, you know, person. He doesn't just look evil per se. But, so he eventually gets in with Celebrimbor, helps him to start forging the Rings of Power. And he himself is involved in the forging of all the rings except the three Elven Rings. The three Elven Rings, as pointed out in the novels, were never touched by Sauron. They have no evil influence whatsoever, other than the fact that they can be controlled or, to some extent, their their works can be destroyed or perceived by the person who wears the One Ring, because Sauron devised the One Ring to do just that. Even though he had no say or part in creating the Three Elven Rings, his One Ring still had a lot to do with that. So, of course, he helps them develop these Rings of Power, and once that gets done, he, of course, forges his own ring of power. He puts on the ring of power. The elves immediately perceive what's happening. They realize that they've been betrayed, and they all take off their elven rings. This is where Sauron really starts his, his open attempt to conquer Middle-earth, because he realizes he's not going to get his way very easily the way he thought he was, which was essentially by kind of backdooring in and manipulating and controlling without having to use overt force. So he just starts outright war. At this point, of course, the Numenorians are still on the island of Numenor. You don't have Gondor, you don't have Arnor. You've got some scattered tribes of men, and but mainly the real you know, force to, uh, to oppose him is the, the elves, the remaining Noldor elves, who are either you know, in Celebrimbor's kingdom, or with Galadriel in Lothlorien, or the ones who are with Elrond and Gilgalad in the far northwest, in more or less the region that would eventually become the north, re north kingdom of Arnor. Uh, there had been some contact between Numenor and the elves, and of course they realize what's going on. They find out that Sauron has begun this war. Sauron almost entirely conquers Middle-earth, uh, but is eventually you know, stopped, and what ends up happening, the, uh, one of the, one of the last kings of Numenor comes with the greatest armada ever seen, and Sauron, who sees this, uh, his 
underlings are very afraid because the Numenorians are still very, very powerful at this point in history. And he pretends to surrender, basically, on the grounds of, wow, you're tougher than me. I'll go along. Uh, so, of course, he's faking the entire time, but he does it so that he can, again, try to use his old tactic of, you know, manipulate, corrupt, try to get people to do things that he wants them to do without having to force them to do it, get them to do it on their own. So he goes back, he's taken as a hostage, a willing hostage, of course, to Numenor, where he wheedles his way into the councils of the last king of Numenor, who's a dirtbag, basically. Uh, for a long time, the kings of Numenor had been really, really nasty, and they had, you know, originally they started out good, and then they just went downhill, and this guy was the worst of them all. He basically wanted to be immortal, be one of the gods, and he thought he, you know, deserved it. And Sauron, of course, uses this because the key motivating factor for so many men in Tolkien's stories is the fear of death. Sauron tells him that you can have eternal life, you just have to go and conquer Valinor. Uh, and so he finally, after a long period of time getting him to do human sacrifices and all this stuff, finally gets him to that point where he tells him, sail with your armada, take it for yourself, and you'll have it. So the king does go with his armada. The Elendil, Isildur, and Anarion, his brother, uh, and the few remaining faithful, they know what's, it can't end well, so they stay behind. They prepare to sail to Middle-earth. Sauron is still in the, the grotesque temple that he's essentially erected to Morgoth uh, doing his thing, and he's just, he's just gleeful about the situation because he knows that Numenor is going to be destroyed for this. And of course it is. Numenor is destroyed by having it sink beneath the waves in a classic Atlantis story. Uh, but in, in the cataclysm, which he didn't expect to necessarily affect Numenor, he just you know knew that he was getting the, the king of Numenor into trouble, he, his, his physical form ends up being destroyed as well. And it's after this point that he can no longer appear as a... a, a good, fair-seeming um, person. He always looks like a bad guy after this point. This is what really kind of breaks it to the point where he can no longer fool people with his appearance, at least. So his spirit, again, because his body is destroyed, flies back to Mordor, where he eventually, you know, he starts trying to rebuild his strength, which doesn't take terribly long, because he still does have the Ring of Power. Uh, the The Survivors of Numenor, of course, land found the kingdoms of Gondor and Arnor, formed the last alliance with uh, Elendil. I mean, I'm sorry. Elendil forms the last alliance with uh, Gilgalad and Elrond. They eventually, of course, fight Sauron back into Mordor. They take back all of Middle-earth. They finally breach the mountains of Mordor, fight him all the way to uh, Mount Doom, in fact. And Sauron, at, at this point, comes out to fight himself because it's it's basically the last extremity. He has no real choice. And <clears throat> in the fight, and this is one thing that I think is really interesting that's not really talked about much in the movies or anything, but it is talked about in the novel, he actually fights hand-to-hand -hand with Elendil and Gilgalad, and they end up essentially all killing each other. Uh, the Elendil and Gilgalad, they managed to destroy Sauron, again, just his physical body, because that's what always happens. 
but Sauron also kills both of them. So you've got, you know, all three of them die. Whereas in the movie, you get this idea that Elendil just kind of gets smushed. And then Elend uh, Isildur takes the sword, cuts the ring off of Sauron's hand. It's actually not quite like that. And that's, I think that's interesting because it shows, A, just because Sauron is a Maya and he's very powerful doesn't mean he's above being destroyed by, you know, human or elvish people. I mean, he can actually be killed, essentially. He's really hard to do because he is really powerful, but he's not so powerful that he's completely beyond that. And so it's an interesting piece of the story that I think really shouldn't have been changed or left out. So anyway, that is the end of the Second Age. And of course, the Third Age, we know mostly what what that's all about, but I'll cover a little bit of that and a few extra uh, interesting points in the next section. So for a great deal of the Third Age, of course, Sauron is either not physically embodied or even when he is physically embodied is much less powerful because so much of his you know inner strength has gone into forging the ring. An interesting point about this, and which kind of connects back to the idea that he could be killed by elves and humans, is kind of talked about in one of the History of Middle-Earth series volumes, which is called Morgoth's Ring. Essentially, Tolkien makes the point in one of his uh, writings that Morgoth's ring was Middle-earth. He essentially put a lot of his own power into Middle-earth itself, trying to control it, whereas Sauron put his into the ring as a means of controlling the other rings of power and giving himself additional power. So part of the idea here is that you can divest yourself of enough power that you can actually make yourself weaker than you really ought to be, which is why Morgoth could be seriously injured by Fingolfin in a duel who's a mere elf, and Sauron could be killed by a man and an elf in the battle at, uh, of uh, Mount Doom. So you've got that going on. So Sauron is much weaker. He doesn't have the ring. He spends most of the Third Age trying to either find it or just simply re rebuild his strength so he can conquer Middle-earth without it. And of course he spends a lot of time as the Necromancer, which uh, is basically the, way, the only way we get introduced to him in The Hobbit, and then of course that gets developed a little more in The Lord of the Rings, where we find out a little more about what he's doing. He's always trying to accomplish his goals without overtly showing who he is, because without the ring he's not strong enough to directly face off against the people who were opposing him, which during the Third Age is mainly the White Council. I mean, he's, he's not faced by men of the stature of Elendil and Isildur, he doesn't have uh, elves of the stature of Gilgalad to fight him. I mean, Elrond is Elrond is a strong character, but I, you know, I'm not sure he'd be quite on the same level as Gilgalad, who was the last king of the Noldor. Uh, arguable, but the main point is, elves are fading. The line of Numenor is being intermingled with, you know, other humans. So they're all kind of just, I don't want to say dumbing down. That's the wrong phrase. But they're all getting weaker in, a, in significant ways. And so Sauron has his main nemeses in the form of Galadriel, who is, is almost as old as <laughs> elven kind, uh, Elrond, the wizards, and maybe one or two others. But that's why in The Hobbit, and you get, again, this is more developed in The Lord of the Rings and some of the other writings that touch on it, he really only gets challenged by them a few times, and he's trying to avoid it. Whenever they do challenge him, he basically just retreats. Uh, Gandalf at one point says, you know, when we 
pushed the evil out of Dol Guldur and got rid of the necromancer, it was really just a feint. I mean, he was pretending to run away, but he really just relocated to Mordor because he realized, you know, I mean, I can't do anything else there, and most of his goals were accomplished to the extent that he wanted to. The only thing he didn't have was the ring. So you got all of that going on. Uh, the only other interesting things I want to point out in the Third Age are some of the elements in the novels that don't really come out as much in the movie, or that get a little bit twisted in the movie. So in the novel, you get Pippin and Aragorn, who both look into the Palantir and, and see something. The interesting thing about Pippin's encounter, in the novel, there's actually a bit of dialogue recorded. It's not really dialogue in, in a sense, because Pippin's mainly telling about what Sauron said in, in the conversation, but you actually get the idea that he's, you know, basically saying stuff, and it's not just a ball of fire that Pippin's holding, and it's terrible, you know. <laughs> so it, it's more interesting because you can see a little bit, just a little bit, of Sauron's thought processes. Another way in which you get to see Sauron's thought press processes is through Gandalf's own estimation of what the thought processes are. Uh, he comments at one point, that Sauron would never expect anybody to try to destroy the ring because he just can't understand that mentality. His own mentality would be to take it and use it as a weapon. And so he can't really understand anybody that would try to do something different. So you get a little bit of, of course, that's surmise on Gandalf's part, but I think we can all take it as a very accurate surmise. Uh, Gandalf is speaking as someone who is roughly Sauron's equal and who may have even known Sauron back when he was a Maya in Valinor, and he's also speaking just from the way of this is how, you know, the nature of things works. You tend to think in the way that you think, and you don't really understand how other people do, and so you get little snatches like that here and there. The other encounter that Sauron has, of course, is with Aragorn, and this is another one where in the movie it gets really twisted, because in the movie you get the idea that Sauron is kind of playing Aragorn by showing him Arwen dead or dying, and then Aragorn, oh no. Whereas in the book, it's a lot more interesting. He actually, uh, when Aragorn looks into the Palantir, he basically confronts Sauron outright, and he actually takes control of the Palantir himself and does what, you know, what he needs to do with the Palantir. And when he tells Legolas and Gimli about this, he mentions the fact that, you know, seeing that I am alive, and you know, that there's an heir of Isildur walking the earth would have caused him enough, you know, pain and agony in the sense of that's worrisome. The other thing, of course, was you know, the fact that he was able to take control of the Palantir from Sauron, which is a big deal, because remember, Sauron had already used the Palantir to corrupt Saruman, who is, you know, inarguably more powerful outright than Aragorn. Uh, Aragorn's main reason he can do that is because it technically belongs to him. Uh, Tolkien talks about some of that in stuff that's recorded in the Unfinished Tales. But he again points out, you know, the fact that he could do that is another thing that would make Sauron, you know, fearful in, in a legitimate sense, that maybe there really is somebody who can still challenge him. And so this later gets talked about again after the Battle of the Pelennor Fields where Aragorn basically says, if I had known that he was going to strike back that hard and that fast, I might have put off looking into the Palantir, because as it was, he barely made it in time to save Minas Tirith from being sacked. So 
you do get a little bit more insight into Sauron's thinking. Uh, and also at the very end where Frodo claims the ring for himself in Mount Doom, you get a very interesting description where, and it's a really well-written passage too, where he basically describes Sauron as just suddenly realizing everything that's gone on. And it's, the description there is just really good. You need to read it for yourself. And you get similar snatches of that, even on the the way through Mordor, where every now and then during Frodo and Sam's journey, you'll get the idea that, you know, the eye is searching for almost frantically trying to figure out what's going on. It's like he doesn't really understand what his enemies are doing, and he really wants to know. And so you do get that. There's always that doubt in the back of his mind that you kind of get referenced throughout the novels. It's not ever written from Sauron's perspective, of course, but you do get those every now and then a mention that shows that he's really, what is going on? And he's worried and he's not, you know, and it, you know, it's just interesting to see that because in the movies, you don't really get any, any indication of what he's like as a character. Whereas in the novels, you do get little hints. So anyway, that is Sauron's character biography and a few interesting points about him. Hope you enjoy the video. Let's wrap up. Sauron has quite the history. He's been around a long time, done a lot of bad things to a lot of good people. Uh, goes all the way back to what is probably the central story of Tolkien's mythology, which is the Baron and Luthien story. And I think that's important because, you know, the fact that Sauron goes through basically all the important stories in Tolkien's mythology tells you how important of a character Sauron himself is. And so I think he's very much worth talking about. There is, of course, a lot more detail you could go into talking about him, uh, but this video is already pretty long. So anyway, if you enjoyed the video, if you thought that was a lot of interesting information, please give it a like and please share it. You can follow me on Twitter at JRRTLore, or you can subscribe to the channel to get regular updates. And until next time, I'm the Tolkien Geek, signing out for the Tolkien Lore channel. No matter